One of the reasons that missions is at the very heart of Christianity is because Jesus teaches his people, teaches us to see the world in a way that is totally different than the way we would ordinarily look at it if we just saw it through the eyes of television, say, or just saw it through the eyes of the secular media or through the theater or through ordinary business enterprises. If we, if you see the world the way ordinary American culture sees the world, you will not be able to make any sense out of world evangelization or out of missions. It will be a big confusion. In fact, if you want to do a little test, which is sort of scary to do, but I invite you to do it for your own soul's sake, you can measure, I think, the degree to which you are controlled and shaped by American culture by asking how great is your burden for world missions. Because the only way to sustain a burden for world missions is to see the world differently than the way you are trained to see it by watching television or by reading secular magazines or reading the newspaper or all kinds of other innocent things. They just don't teach you to see the world the way it's got to be seen if missions is to make any sense. So what I want to do as we move toward our text this morning, which is John 4, 31 to 38, I want to take you toward that text by walking you through some illustrations in the Gospel of John of how he blew the mind of people's way of looking at the world again and again. Let me show you what I mean. We'll start in John chapter 2. You can either look, look at these with me or you can just listen because I'm going to pass through them fairly quickly. The first illustration of how Jesus sees the world so differently is in John 2, and he's talking about the the temple. And he makes a whip, and he goes into the temple, and he drives out the money changers who are there dealing and selling pigeons and goats. And uh, he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, now that totally baffles them because they're not computing. They don't get it. They don't see the way he sees. And they say all they can think to say is it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to build it in three days. And they're not seeing because what he saw was there is a temple, namely me. This one's coming down in 40 years. And it's never going to be rebuilt. I am now the temple. If you want to meet God, you meet here. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. It didn't make any sense at all. Here's another illustration of how he blows their minds. The whole point being now, as each one of these illustrations is, you're not going to get missions unless you see the world through the eyes of Jesus. Here's a second illustration. John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him at night. Uh, wonders uh, who he is. And Jesus boggles his mind with verse 3 and says, Unless one is born again, born again. Oh, if we could only hear that fresh instead of our, we've got it all religionized and we don't even hear how mind-boggling this was to Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Well, now, Nicodemus, just like the people of the temple, they don't get it. They can't imagine a temple that's a man, and he can't imagine any birth except one with pain and blood. And so he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not getting it. You're not getting it yet. I'm talking about a reality that you've got to see, a spiritual reality that's got to enter into your life and make you, as it were, born totally over again. And you're not getting it yet. And that's the way it is with missions for a lot of people. They're not getting it because it, it involves seeing the world through Jesus' eyes so that spiritual realities, which are the main realities, are more real than television, more real than the place you work. More real than the family that you live with. That's the only way you're going to have a heart and a burden and a passion for missions. Here's example number three, chapter four. The Samaritan woman. Jesus is talking to her at the well there. And he drops his bombshell on her worldview in verse 10 and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living Water. And she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. She's not getting it. The people didn't get it that there was a temple who could, who could be a man. They didn't get it that there was a birth that could be spiritual. And she's not getting it that there's water that's not this water. It's soul water. And so she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? And that's exactly the way people respond to missions. If you don't see the world through the eyes of Jesus, you will leave this room today and missions will have no place in your life. Zero. Because you don't see the world yet. You don't get it. You don't get it. You're like these people who say, temple, temple. How can you do that in three days? Birth, birth. How can you do that without labor pains? And I don't get it. I'm big. I can't fit in there. That's the way people are about missions. Or about this one, water, water. He's going to give me water and I'll never be thirsty again. Oh, good, but he doesn't have a bucket. That you, The Christianity and world evangelization is like that. If you don't see the world that Jesus sees, you just kind of look at these flags and say, what's that? What's that? Is it United Nations or something? What is this missions thing? Why does everybody get so worked up? About missions, because you're not getting it. Yeah. Here's the last illustration. Chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, more than 5,000 people, with five barley loaves and two fish. And the whole point is to be a sign that something powerful is here in Jesus Christ. There is a food here. There is a... A relationship here. There is a kingdom here that you need to wake up to, folks. He's saying. But in verse 27, he says it like this. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And they don't get it. They don't get it. He says in verse 26, I think. You seek me not because you saw the sign. But because you ate of loaves and were filled, all they could imagine was we, we got more food from him so he'd make a good king and we could 
have, not have to work for food anymore. They're stuck. So, like so many church attending Americans are stuck in a tiny little grasp of reality. Just a little teeny swath of reality that you can see as you walk around in the world with human eyes. And the massive reality of a temple who is a man and a birth that is spiritual and water that is eternal and bread that comes from heaven. They don't get it. One of my great longings this morning is that God would use this message in our worship service to just waken you. There's a reality, folks. There's a world out there that you can't see and you can't touch. And it is the greatest reality, the biggest reality, and it's the only one that will make sense out of world missions. Now, the whole point is to move us toward our text here in John chapter 4, verses 31 to 38, where he is going to blow our minds with regard to food and blow our minds with regard to reaping and blow our minds with regard to sowing. He's got a wholly different way of looking at things than we ordinarily do. But before I get to that, one more thing. I want to tell you a story about William Wilberforce. The reason I stick this story in here is because we are senders and we are goers in this room. And uh, the senders have a mission right here, both to send the goers and to be local winners. Missions is sending the gospel across a culture to win people to Christ and plant the church where the church doesn't exist yet. That's missions. Evangelism or local ministry is to where the church is already planted, win people, more people. At your workplace and in your neighborhood. Those are very different enterprises. And both are very crucial and very valuable. Now, William Wilberforce, 200 years ago, was a British Christian politician who's mainly known for laboring for about 30 years to overcome the British slave trade. Politically. And he did it. Before he died, he saw bills passed that made it illegal in Britain long before it was illegal in our own country. But what I want you to see is that this world-class British parliamentarian statesman was a very devoted personal witness for Jesus Christ. And this story that I read yesterday in a little biography was remarkable to me. It said that he would make a list in his journal, and he had a little journal excerpt there, of people that he was laboring to witness to. And he would make little notations beside the initials, he didn't have the names evidently, at least they didn't print them in in this, about how he might more effectively do that. In fact, it said he would often take an hour after supper and develop what he called launchers. He would think and pray about launchers. This blew me away because I thought this was sort of modern, that back in the days before there was a secular city, you know, like ours, everybody talked about religion and you didn't need any launchers into a religious discussion. But for Wilberforce, he would take an hour after dinner 
to think about particular people and then pray, Lord, what would be a launch? I usually think of that in terms of space shuttles. But it was evidently used for boats and other things back then. And he would say, what would launch me into a discussion of vital religion and personal faith with them? Here's an excerpt, the kind of thing he wrote in his journal. Mr. S. and Mrs. What books are they reading? To give them good ones, like Walker's sermons. Call on Mrs. S. and talk a little. Lend her Venn's last sermon. Education of their children. Inquire about it. Prayer. They're coming some Sunday to Battersea Rise to hear Venn. Call often and be kind. That's the kind of thing he wrote in his journal. Launchers. Now, he evidently didn't think he was very good at this. Because he wrote in his journal one time that he hadn't communicated very well. And the story was told that he often was doing better than he thought. Here's what it said. Once, after talking for some time to an ill friend, Lord N., Wilberforce was aware that he had not broached the issue of religion. Another friend came in and asked the invalid how he was doing. And Lord N. replied, as well as I can be with Wilberforce sitting here telling me that I'm going to hell. So here's a, here's a world-class statesman who labored his whole life at a social level to overcome an injustice, who lived at another level of his life with an intense burden for people's individual destiny, so much so that he saw the world through the eyes of Jesus and knew there was a hell out there, knew that there was a heaven out there, knew that there would be a separating of the sheep and the goats and never a turning back and a great gulf between. And it just came out of him so much that this guy felt like, I get the message, even though Wilberforce didn't think he was getting it across. So I want us to go to our text now with this backdrop that you got to see the world differently if world missions is going to make any sense. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 4, verse 31 to 38. Totally different view of the world is going to come out here in regard to food and reaping and harvest. Let's read, first of all, verses 31 to 34. It said, oh, the, the setting here... Many of you know, but some of you don't. He has just finished spending some time, maybe half an hour or so, I don't know, talking with a Samaritan woman who'd been married five times. And uh, he'd been dealing with her about her own faith and worship. And, and she now had gone back to the town and his disciples had been in the town, maybe getting food. And, and they're now back. And that's where we pick up the text. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples, they didn't get it. See, they didn't get it. Here's another one. Illustration number five. They don't get it. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, oh, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. So he's saying, um, I know it's lunchtime. 
But brothers, I just spent a half an hour talking to a, a woman and doing the will of my father. And brothers, I'm full. I am full. Now this raises a really big question for us. How is it that expending energy that burns food is food? How's that work? How does Jesus say, my food is the work of my Father? How can work be food? I mean, work burns food. Work depletes you of food. And he says, blowing our minds again, he never sees things the way ordinary people do. He says, my work, my talking to this woman about her soul and about worship and about living water and about her marriages and about the people that she's related to. Brothers, that's food. I eat that. I live on that. That's my life. You got anything in your life like that? You know what that means? It's a remarkable thing that in the Christian mystery, in the mystery of Christian life, feeding is feasting. Pouring out is receiving. And I think there's a a really deep, powerful reason for this. When you put your hand to God's favorite enterprise and pour yourself into that, God pours into you. He won't ever let you be depleted. God is able to provide you with all grace so that in everything, always, you may have all sufficiency and provide in abundance for every good work. And I apologize for sending you out without giving you the text of that verse last Sunday. It's Second Corinthians 9, 8. Feeding is a way of feasting. Feeding is a way of feasting. If you wonder right now why you're weak, could it be that you haven't spent yourself? Could it be that right at the moment at your workplace where there was a golden opportunity to do a launcher and God stood ready to pour into you an extraordinary blessing fully adequate for what that would mean in your life, you cut it off and God Waited. There's food to be had in doing the will of God in personal evangelism and world missions. And so the first way that Jesus blows our mind in this text is to try to reorient our whole way of thinking about getting nourished. Many churches make the absolutely fatal mistake of saying, well, we're a little bit broken and we've gone through some hard things. And so we better not put any flags up and try to get up any energy to do anything for anybody else because we got to work hard on getting everything together here in me and us. Jesus says, you want food? 
You want nourishment? You want life? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his word. What's your food? That's what the Lord, I think, would say to a church that does that. Now, corporately, um, let's see, where's the little, what did I do with it? There it is. If you brought this along, take it out right now. And if you don't have one, they're underneath the pew in front of you. This is our mission statement. If you're a visitor today and you'd like to take one of these with you, you may do that. We spent a year working on this, and it is now our mission statement, vision statement. I want you to turn to page 7. Page 7. In 1990, God came in power among us and lifted us into a vision, I believe, and many believe, that is called 2,000 by 2,000, sending out 2,000 of our people and harvesting 2,000 people who are unbelievers. And when we, at mid-decade, as a master planning team, contemplated whether or not God had changed his mind about that, we said no. He hadn't changed his mind. In fact, he wanted us to embrace this with fresh zeal. And I want to read this with you. Would you, would you read it out loud with me, starting with the words, to spread there? Let's read it. To spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples, we gladly embrace with fresh zeal the sending and harvesting goals of 2000 by 2000. Now, here we are at mid-decade, and if you want to see where we are in our statistics, you can look on page 10 of the booklet, or you can take the blue booklet that was put in your worship folder and read all about 2000 by 2000 and look at the back of it with the November 1 uh, update on the statistics of where we are in the sending and harvesting. We're not halfway there at mid-decade. And therefore, there's a great need for awakening and revival and empower and the outpouring of God among us. My point here is that 2,000 by 2,000 is our food. If we as a church want to feed on God, I think Jesus is saying to us, my food and your food is to do the will of him who sent us into the world and to complete his purpose. And for you, very concretely, it's the harvesting of 2,000 people and the sending of 2,000 people in the next five Years And I am fully able, by the outpouring of my spirit and the awakening of your people, I am fully able to bring that to pass. We'll see that in a moment when we look at some countries where God is doing far more than that in harvesting. Let me look at one more part of this text with you. Look at verses 35 to 38. You do not say, or do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white unto harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In Minnesota, corn is sown in the spring 
And there is no point in lifting up your eyes to the fields on July 4th to check out whether it's ready to harvest. Knee high by the 4th of July, and that's it. Nobody harvests corn on 4th of July in Minnesota, and you may as well not lift up your eyes. Four months till the harvest, at least that's what it was in Jesus' day, you plant, you wait for four months, and then you harvest. And Jesus says, don't you ever think that way about missions. The point of this text is, do not get into a mechanistic way of thinking about the kingdom of God as though, well, we we sowed for that and now it'll take three years before we get harvest on this scale of understanding. Or we sowed for five years and so perhaps there might be now five years of harvesting or anything else like that. He says, you say in the natural realm, there are four months and then comes harvest. Right, you can do that in the natural realm. That's the way I've set up the world. That is not the way I've set up the kingdom. In the kingdom, I am totally free. For example, I think he would say, if they scratch their heads, we don't have the whole conversation here. They're scratching their heads and saying, what are you talking about? He said, look, I just spent a half an hour talking to this woman. I sowed the word and the truth into her life. Right now, as we're talking, she's in town sowing the seed that I sowed into her. Brothers, make ready to harvest. They're coming. And you are going to enter in to this harvest for which you did not labor. I labored for half an hour. John the Baptist labored here. Moses and the prophets labored through their writings here. You are about to enter in to some incredible harvest in this little town. Let's go. So the point is, forget this four-month stuff. I labored a half an hour ago. It'll be a matter of hours, and they will be ready. So the, the, the point is, to blow, to blow out of the water a mechanistic, fatalistic view of missions, as though there's any reason it should happen today the way it happened yesterday, as though there's any particular time that should elapse in Guinea or Thailand or Japan, Now, here's the last thing. The sowing and the reaping are often in farming done by the same person. A farmer sows, farmer reaps, sometimes different people. He says, in the kingdom, it's regular that it's different people. One sows and the other reaps. Now, the implications of that are very, very important. Historically, it's true. In our missionaries, it's true. We have people today who labor in sowing places where there's almost no harvest. I think of Thailand. I think of Japan. I think of of Guinea. You pick the fruit one at a time. And the discouragement factor is immense. And to keep those missionaries at it will take a tremendous power of prayer on our part and some teaching like this that does not lay a guilt trip on them that the sower always is the reaper. Jesus says that's not the case. Some people sow, other people reap. In the other category, I would put Kazakhstan, where you read the letters coming back and the emails coming back from Brian and Deanna Pratt, and you're just boggled. You know, about 500 people are worshiping on Sunday morning after two years of harvesting. 500 new converts. 
And they had a, a little uh, special outreach event back in September. And 80 people came to Christ, were folded into their cell groups. But the price there is also immense. The kind of struggles, the kind of conflicts, the kind of sickness, the kind of tensions, the kind of family strife, all kinds of things emerge in that kind of success as well. I put China in that category. Not because our missionaries can do very much by way of harvesting. They're still sowing. But the harvesting since the 1940s is just incredible. For a hundred years, there was sowing. At the end of that hundred years, there's about a million Christians in China. 1948, poof, all the missionaries are gone. I read last week a new revised statistic, both from the officials in China and then a larger one from the unofficial. The unofficial one is 134 million Christians in China now. And I do it a quick, quick comp- computation. And, I'm, and if somebody handed me a card and said you were wrong, and I'm, I, I, you just take this for its worth and do the math and tell me if I'm wrong, and, and that's okay. But here's what I computed. 134 million in 50 years. I divide 50 into 134 million. I get about 2.5 million or so. And then I divide 365 days into two and a half million, and I came up with two and a half Pentecosts every day for 50 years. Now, if I'm making a mistake, I am no mathematician, and I, I, but that's still what the math seems like to me. If you just do linear growth, just add it on one at a time. God is doing a tremendous harvesting work in China. And he's doing the same thing in Siberia, and in many other places. A guy came up to me after the service and said, I, I am from Colombia. I'm here on my way to a missions meeting with Team Mission. And I can't tell you what God is doing, not just among the village people, but among the, the uh, power brokers in Colombia these days where there's so much violence. So let me close with this word. Missions is to be a joyful, joyful work. You see that in verse 36? Already he who reaps is receiving reward and is gathering fruit for eternal life that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now, how how in the world are the sowers going to rejoice when it may be a decade until the reaping comes and they may be off the scene? And the only answer I know is by faith in future grace. By faith, they reach into the future and say, We will abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Therefore, our job now is to hold them up. And my prayer for you is that God might cultivate among you a strong responsiveness to his blessed work in world evangelization. Here's the way I want to close. I want to pray for those of you who are in missions, home on furlough. On your way to missions, you're fundraising or you're doing some kind of deputation. And here's the other group I want to pray for. In fact, I'm going to stand over here and I'm going to invite you to come up in just a minute. We'll close with this prayer. I want you to stand here. The other group besides missionaries and those on your way is if in the last weeks, months, year, God has been awakening in you the possibility that missions might be in your future. And you hadn't thought of this. And now it's something you're praying about. It's not a commitment to come up here and let me pray for you. It's just, would you pray for me? Because that is something that's happening in my life right now. Would, Would those three categories come and stand right here so that I can just pray with you as we close? Come on. I know that there's some of you here. 
Come on in. And let me pray with you. I'll tell you, I barely got through my prayer in the first service because my son Abraham walked up. So if they're young people or older people, might be dreaming about a short-term thing, I want you to join us here. Let's just get in close. And I want to pray for you all. And as I pray, the rest of you be praying as well. Come on in. Oh, Father in heaven, I just lift up my hands now over these brothers and sisters with a deep longing that I express on behalf of all of us here in this room. And the longing, God, is that you might manifest yourself to them in a way that clarifies and solidifies their sense of call. Lord, if this is something you're doing in their lives, may there come this very moment a sweet peace settling upon them. May the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, as Paul said. Rule, be the arbiter of the will of God here. And Lord, I pray that you'd protect them from the evil one. I pray that you'd guard them from having the word of God and his call choked out in their lives. I pray that they'd lift up the shield of faith and be protected from the fiery darts of the evil one. I pray that you'd immerse them in the word and in prayer. I pray that in couples there would be a harmony and a deep sense of unified togetherness about what you might be doing in their lives, oh God. I pray for families to be whole in this. I pray for wider wider extended families where moms or dads or uncles or aunts or brothers or sisters might think they're just fools for considering such a thing. That that would be transformed and that people would be ready to give away their sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and grandkids to the kingdom's cause. Lord, I pray that there would be a sense of fervor and zeal for the glory of the Lord. I pray that we would be a people who spread a passion for your name and your supremacy in all things for the joy of all peoples. And now, Lord, I commend them to your grace, which is able to establish them and build them up and give them an inheritance among all those who are satisfied and sanctified in you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done here in these two services in awakening all of us to the crucial mission that you have. Ready these people. Fire these people. Strengthen these people. Go with them, I pray. And all the people said, Amen.